Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Bourchier Street in Soho, W1, at the back of the unsolved murder of Dutch Leia, a few doors down from the beating of baby Richard, a few doors up from the failed poisoning of Henry Hall's family, and one street north of the Stockholm Syndrome of Susan Latany, coming soon to Murder Mile. Bourchier Street is grim. It sounds posh, as the name originates from the French Boursier, meaning keeper of the purse. Except the only purses unveiled in this drab little alley are the ones a little scrot has robbed, so he can blow a tenner on enough skag to make a lightweight microbe mildly merry, or the kind a drunk gent's whittle dribbles down as he struggles to paint his own shadow in wee-wee. Oh yes, this is a real hovel, being little more than a dark alley hidden by the backs of brothels. Apparently. In 1945, Bouchier Street was worse than it is today. A 60-64-old Compton Street had been hit by a 25-kilo bomb, which had reduced it to piles of rubble and burnt-out fascias. With no shops, this was little more than a place to take a sneaky detour, to empty your bladder, or to lay in wait for your next victim. At a little after 11.30pm, on Friday the 14th of September 1945, Captain John Ritchie of the Canadian Army was attacked on Bouchier Street by two British soldiers clutching half a brick. But why? This is a case less about the man who died or the men who did it, but how a war had shaped and then broke them. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 183, Captain J.A. Ritchie and the End of the War.
Today is victory in Europe day. 8th of May, 1945. VE day. Hitler is dead. Berlin has fallen. The axis of evil has been crushed by the might of the right. And the Second World War was just four months from its official end. For the first time in six years, as Big Ben rang out, street parties erupted as a grey gloom of people rejoiced. It had been a long-fought battle in which so many had died and so much had been lost. But now, for those who had survived, their lives would return to some kind of normality. Twelve days later, Captain J.A. Ritchie would be beaten to death. Born on the 3rd of August 1920, Robert Blaine would be a lifelong resident of Southwark, a borough just south of the River Thames. Formerly of Borrot Road in Walworth, few records survive of his early years, except that he was an average working-class man who had little or no contact with his family. On the 29th of September 1939, three weeks into the war, the National Registration Act was introduced. Every British subject was issued with an identity card and their details were taken. Robert was listed as a 19-year-old general labourer living at 6 St. Clair Chambers on Sylvester Street. Barely scraping by on a basic wage, with very little to call his own, his life was tough and exhausting. Robert Blaine was an ordinary man, living an unremarkable life. And yet his life was about to become extraordinary, whether he liked it or not. When we think about the lives of those who lived through the Second World War, we think of rationing. Mistakenly believing that this skirmish would be done by Christmas, in January 1940, the Ministry of Food introduced rationing, and each person was limited to a weekly allowance of 8 ounces of sugar, 3 ounces of sweets, 4 ounces of ham, 3 pints of milk, 2 ounces of tea, cheese and butter, with 1 egg and 1 pack of dried eggs every 4 weeks. In comparison to today, if the average coffee shop patron guzzles a large cafe latte, a muffin and a cheese and ham toasty. They would have annihilated more than half their weekly ration in one sitting. But there were many more measures and ramifications which impinged on the people and their lives. Wartime memories are often littered with the rose-tinted recollections of those who cherry-picked the chaos to create a myth of blitz spirit. It's romantic, but it's inaccurate. It's true that amidst the bombing and destruction, that we, the plucky British people with our stiff upper lips, flipped a mid-digit to Adolf 
by refusing to be defeated as his Luftwaffe rained down death from the skies. But the same was true of the Germans, whose cities our bombers had failed to cripple, and its people to break. Another myth was that there was no crime and you could leave your doors open. But as we know, with history written by the victors, who believed that they had won the right to edit the bits of their history they didn't like. The good old days are often remembered for what they should have been, instead of what they were. In reality, war is brutal, and life during any conflict is oppressive. Within the blink of an eye, the world of so many decent people was turned upside down, with everything they had known either changed or gone. For criminals, it was a boom time, which is why many prisons were emptied of anyone with three months or less to serve, making space for spies, but mostly for the real criminals, like looters, spivs and deserters. But even for the average Joe, with good morals, who could still proudly claim, I never broke the law. Low-level criminality was absolved, as the buying of black market goods was the equivalent of a little white lie. On a single day in November 1940, the Old Bailey heard 20 of the 56 cases for looting during the Blitz. Across just four months, 4,584 cases were tried of those who had stolen from the bombed-out homes of their neighbours, often stepping over the dead or dying to ransack the remnants of their shattered lives. So rife was the looting that when a building was bombed, the police had to spend more time protecting the property than searching for survivors, as a home could be stripped in just 20 minutes. Times were difficult, ethics were a grey area, and the rationale of the living was that they had families to feed. Rationing had also led to one of the most lucrative black market activities, the forging of ration coupons. In 1944, 14,000 ration books were stolen in a raid many of which were sold on Oxford Street for £10 a sheet, with a value today of £400 each, or £3 million for the entire haul. Many ordinary people wouldn't have seen this as an offence, as in their eyes, it's not a crime if everyone's at it. Besides, we're at war. By March 1941, 2,300 people had been prosecuted for fraud and dishonesty. In 1943, 5 million clothing coupons were stolen. And by 1945, there were more than 114,000 prosecutions for black market sales. With the government compensating those who had lost their homes 
to the tune of 500 pounds. Systems were open to abuse, as we have seen during COVID. In one case, Walter Handy of Wandsworth made a successful claim for the bombing of the same house 19 times over five months. In the end, he received three years free food and accommodation, courtesy of the British government in Wandsworth Prison. But the prisons weren't only full of pilferers. As in wartime, simply standing up for your rights had become a crime, as it was illegal to go on strike. In 1942, miners at the Kent Colliery went on strike over working conditions. Their leaders were arrested. But unable to imprison the 1,000-strong pit, Many were fined, but almost none of them paid. And as for the notion that we knew everyone and all looked out for one another, the facts simply don't back that up. As in so many murders, as with the Blackout Ripper, the neighbours of these lone women who were living in the same building would later comment how strange it was that they hadn't been seen or heard from for days. And yet no one went to see if they were okay. Which is not to say that today we are any better or worse, but that we haven't had the luxury of time to gloss over the inconvenience of truth. Wartime was difficult, existence was hard, and it forced even ordinary people to do desperate things. That was the world that Robert Blaine was living in, only with one big difference. Being in his early twenties, he'd been conscripted to fight. On the 3rd of September 1939, the day Britain declared war on Germany, Parliament passed the National Service Act, ordering all medically fit males aged 18 to 41 to fight for king and country. One of the one and a half million men conscripted to fight was 19-year-old South London labourer Robert Blaine. Like anyone else, we don't know his morals, his ethics, his hopes, his dreams or his politics. But it can't have been easy. Overnight, he was uprooted, his life ripped apart. And given limited training, he was forced to fight, to shoot and to kill. To murder a mass of strangers in a foreign country for a reason he may not have fully understood, with the knowledge that he may end up dead, disabled or deranged. Everywhere he looked, he was told, it's your duty to fight, to kill, to give your life for king and country. And although millions of soldiers did, this trauma would stay with them for the rest of their lives.
through the prism of our modern-day lives, you may think he had the right to say no. But he didn't. With prisons cleared for deserters and conscientious objectors, regardless of their political or religious beliefs, they were seen as the true enemy. Many men were shamed into fighting by their loved ones. Even though the fifth commandment is thou shalt not kill. In a Christian faith which during the Second World War, 64% of the British population claimed that they were. By the war's end, 500 objectors were court-martialed. 17 were sentenced to death although none were carried out. 150 objectors were imprisoned for life. Many were harassed and beaten, and the bulk would suffer a huge stigma. If a serving soldier committed a criminal offence, like theft, assault or drunkenness, their status as a valued member of society meant that the police and law courts often downgraded or turned a blind eye to their crimes. And yet for the crime of not doing your duty, the sentence could be severe. During World War I, 306 British soldiers were shot for desertion. Not murder, not terrorism, but for refusing to fight. But with this deemed illegal, according to the 1929 Geneva Convention, other punishments were enacted. During World War II, if you went absent without leave, you could serve anything from two years to life. Pretending to have an illness or injury to avoid service, the crime of malingering was also punishable by two years in prison and for the crime of misconduct towards a superior officer, you could expect up to 10 years in prison. Conscripted in 1939, Private Robert Blaine was an infantryman in the British Army. As a labourer who had harboured no dreams of an army life, he had endured the harsh regime of the military for six years. That six years of chowing down on substandard rations, marching like drones at the crack of dawn, being barked at by bullies who were too shy to fight, and routinely punished for minor misdemeanors, like not bullying his boots to a mirror shine, or daring to speak his own mind in the earshot of a sergeant. With very little freedom, and no idea when this legally enforced torture would end. We know that Robert Blaine sometimes adopted the alias of Reginald Douglas Johnson, and often he deserted his post. Today is victory in Europe Day. Tomorrow, 8th of May, 1945. VE Day. 
With the war as good as over, many enlisted men faced several futures. Some tried to return to the civilian lives they had left behind. But their world had gone. No job, no home, no wage and no purpose. For others, with the war technically over, many serving soldiers had their pay cut. The government hadn't considered giving them a pension for the sacrifice. And for many, as new regimes popped up, as old enemies died, their conscription had only just begun. Rationing remained for another decade, with bread added to the list of ration basics in 1946. And as a new crime wave swept across Britain, unemployment rose, goods were slim, and to make a few quid, many soldiers sold off their guns, which flooded the streets. During the post-war years, it was said it was safer to fight overseas for your country than to live at home on the streets of our cities. The Second World War officially ended on the 2nd of September 1945. During the celebrations, Robert Blaine went AWOL. The war was over. But still under conscription, he was classified as a deserter. As a born and bred Londoner, now 25, Robert Blaine had returned to the one place he knew, London. He had left behind a pristine city, and what he had returned to was a smouldering ruin of black smoke, bomb craters and chaos. Everything he knew or owned was gone. His home, his job and his belongings. And worse still, having left the battlefields behind, the city was now a sea of death and destruction. In the year prior to his conscription, the annual homicide rate in England and Wales was roughly 400 people a year. One year later, as bombers obliterated the city, that rose to 400 people per day. Mortuaries were overwhelmed. Bodies lay unburied. The dismembered limbs of loved ones littered the rubble-strewn streets. Morgue vans became as familiar as the ice cream trucks once were. And the city's swimming pools were drained to keep the dead bodies cool until their remains could be claimed. A new epidemic was ravaging the streets, and its name was Death. Between 1939 and 1945, the crime rate in England and Wales rose by 57%, with the number of reported murders doubling in just five years. With a decimated police force, many cases went unsolved, as it was almost impossible to prove or disprove a person's disappearance during wartime in the Blitz. Rape was up, robbery was up, 
manslaughter was up. And with many citizens and servicemen seeing a black person for the very first time, London experienced race riots and even lynchings in the West End. And yet, more than 80 years after the event, there was one other conspicuously silent massacre which is rarely spoken about by those who lived through these darkest of days. When war was declared, the British government formed NARPAC, the National Air Raid Precautions Animals Committee, whose job it was to advise pet owners. Worried that many people couldn't afford the luxury of a cat or dog, their freely distributed pamphlets advised, if you cannot place them in the care of neighbours, it really is kindest to have them destroyed. Alongside an advert for a bolt pistol. Appealing for calm over this unnecessary hysteria, veterinarian groups like the PDSA and the RSPCA were against such drastic instructions. But with their hospitals swamped by worried owners, more than three-quarters of a million pets were legally destroyed, many in the first few weeks of the war. It is still unclear how many family pets were murdered during the panic, as many were drowned, shot or strangled. It was hardly a welcome home for Robert, but everyone's life had been altered forever. With nothing but the uniform on his back and a few shillings in his pocket, he couldn't just restart his life. As without discharge papers, he couldn't get work. Without a national ID card, he couldn't get a ration book. Without a furlough pass, he risked being arrested for simply walking the streets. All of which left him with just one option, to commit crime. During his desertion, Robert met up with 19-year-old Charles Connolly, also known as Jock, a stockily built Glaswegian who'd been arrested as a stowaway on board the HMS Europa. Fleeing from the military police in Plymouth, he had broken free of his handcuffs, resulting in a wound to his right hand. Both men were hungry, broke, on the run, and their only crime was wanting their old lives back. On Friday the 14th of September 1945, the night that Captain J.A. Ritchie would die, Robert Blaine and Charles Connolly were in Soho. A dangerous den of iniquity. But with bars and brothels on each street, where syphilis raveled servicemen spread the diseases that sex workers were unfairly blamed for. The intersections of Old Compton Street was the perfect place for a deserting soldier to hide in plain sight. Soho, 
especially at night, was deadly. Dubbed London's murder spot, over the previous 18 months, Scotland Yard and the Home Office had become gravely concerned about this deadly square mile. With many people describing Soho as a no-man's land, the unlit streets of this patch, renamed Little Chicago, was awash with theft, looting, drunkenness, assault, extortion, drugs, prostitution and death. As gangs of civilians and servicemen engaged in street fights with guns, knives and knuckle dusters. Prior to this little-known murder, which barely bothered many journalists think, Superintendent Parker and Divisional Detective Inspector Stevens of West End Central informed the military authorities that they were busy enough with civilian crime without needing to deal with these military hooligans. That night, with the Canadian and US military patrols having been doubled on the streets from Soho down to Victoria, in a bid to clean up the West End and to whisk away any troublemakers, so seriously was this taken that all US military police had been reissued with loaded firearms. At roughly 11.30pm, Captain John Alexander Ritchie, a 41-year-old Canadian officer, was taking a shortcut from Dean Street to Wardle Street through the bombed-out remains of Bouchier Street. It was dark, isolated, and he had enjoyed a few drinks that night, as being on leave from the Hampshire depot in Tweedsmuir, he was due to be repatriated back home to Montreal. This thin, unlit alley was, and still is, a bottleneck at the best of times. Once you're in, it's hard to get out, especially if you're cornered by two hoods, hidden in the shadows, as there's nowhere else to run. Being drunk and outmanned, Captain Ritchie was robbed and possibly having fought back, one of the desperate deserters had smacked the officer over the head with half a brick. And as he lay bleeding and unconscious, the other deserter rifled his pockets, stealing five pound in notes, or just two weeks of their army wage. Found a few minutes later, Captain J.A. Ritchie died of his injuries at 11.45pm. Pursued by two constables, Charles Connolly escaped and was never found. Seen hiding in a doorway, Robert Blaine, who was thin, hungry, and had clearly been sleeping rough for weeks, was arrested and the half a brick was found inside of his jacket and taken into evidence. When questioned, he stated, I didn't do it. He hit him while I was holding him, admitting to the robbery but blaming Connolly for the killing. 
tried at the Old Bailey on the 16th of November 1945. The prosecution would allege that although it could not be proven whether he had struck the fatal blow which killed Captain Ritchie, there was clear evidence that he had taken part in the assault. Summing up, the judge would state, where two persons are engaged in a robbery with violence and the victim dies, they are both guilty of the murder. It is quite immaterial which one of them gave the fatal blow. Being sentenced to death and with his appeal dismissed, Private Robert Blaine was executed on the 29th of December 1945 by hangman Albert Pierpoint. For many, the end of the war didn't mark a return to normality, as their lives and their trauma would last a lifetime. As the victors, it's easy to romanticize the conflict and to cherry-pick the facts. But what that does is to erase and devalue the hardship and the struggle that the average person endured. War was hard. Life was hard. And many people made sacrifices, both physically and morally, to survive. To forget the real truth is a disservice to those who gave up their life and sanity to protect us. As during these desperate times, even good people were driven to kill for just a few pounds. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, oh, friggy, friggy McFrig face of Frighampton. Oh, I'm having a swig of water. Oh. 
Christ. Hey everyone, welcome to Extra Mile. Oh, I'm trying to get myself ahead of the game because we've got the crime con thing happening soon. So we're going to go to Glasgow for that, and I want to go and I want to go and try and go and see my dad and my stepmom. Oh, so I'm trying to instead of giving myself time off, which I rarely do anyway, I'm powering ahead, trying to give myself get a couple of days ahead, and I'm just oh. Oh, I'm knackered. But I thought that was a good episode. I enjoyed that. Anyway, sorry, let me take off your your hat. There we go. There's your hat taken off. There you go. You can now probably hear me as I move around. Oh, did I say welcome to Extra Mile Unedited Unscripted? This is the waffly bit. The waffly bit that people seem to like. I don't know why. I don't know why. Um... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a cup of tea because do you know why it's not hot out down today? It's all right. It's all right. So I prep this one already. Oh, there we go. Done. That's prepped. Oh, I'm gonna have some fish sticks in a second. I haven't eaten all day. Sunday. It's Sunday post. It's Sunday afternoon. I've been powering through to get this done and I'm knackered oh uh so I'm gonna go into Costa in a bit okay. gives me a little walk into town go into Costa sit down have a coffee charge up all my equipment uh oh um and I'm, I'm working on I'm working on something special for when we've got a, a break coming up because uh, I, I need to finish doing the research on the final kind of eight to ten episodes to finish the year off and then, so I need three weeks to kind of really get that right uh, it'd be lovely if I just sat down and just waffled on about shite I read on Wikipedia but I don't do that so uh, yeah I've got to get it right so I'm planning something interesting on the three weeks while we're away something different but I'm trying to get that written so that's, I'm writing that in my spare time while I'm doing this anyway oh got nothing left Tea's on the tea's on the go. Right. Uh what's going on in the world? Oh, news. Uh I posted it on social media. Uh this would be like two weeks ago by the time you get this, but I totally forgotten to mention it on here. Uh Murderwell Walks, the walking tour of Soho that I used to do every Sunday morning. Uh my plan originally was to bring back a new version. Uh I'd written it, I'd researched it. Well, obviously you research it first, then you write it. Um and the plan was to kind of bring it back. Um as soon as I started rehearsing it, I just realised I don't have any love for it anymore. I just, I just the walking tour. I just, I'm done. I've been, I've done it for eight years. I'm done. So it's, it's finished. Unfortunately, it's over. It won't be coming back. So just to say, if you have a ticket that hasn't been used or a voucher, um, get in touch with me. Email me. I will refund you. That's not a problem at all. Sorry about that. I know. I know. For some people, I had said that I was gonna, um, uh transfer their ticket to the new tour but unfortunately that's not going to happen now uh, or we can do what i did with the other one um uh we raised around 200 pounds last time so some tickets that weren't used some people said uh i'd said if you want i can ex i can convert that ticket because obviously the money's already in my account i can convert that into a, a donation to go to st mungo's so at uh, last christmas uh we gave 200 pounds to st mungo's which was great so if you want a refund, uh, message me. I can give you a refund. That's not a problem. If you want uh, it to go to St Mungo's, that's good as well. Uh, message me. Just say, uh, can can my ticket to go to St Mungo's? I'll do that. And I'll let everyone know how much money we raised, which is good. You provide uh, bedding and food and services for homeless people of uh, Soho and surrounding areas, which is great. Uh, or 
or some people have just said, ah, forget it, I don't care. So <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That was the plan to do Murder Mile Walks, but my, do you know what? My my heart's just not in it anymore. Whereas the writing and the research, I loved, absolutely loved it. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. But the researching and getting ready to do a walk, I just not interested anymore. So the the research will probably go into more episodes from Murder Mile, the, the podcast, uh, or new projects that I'm working on for the future that's what i want to do is really focus on new stuff going forwards not old stuff going backwards and unfortunately the walks although they were nice a bit of a step backwards i felt just didn't didn't excite me so sorry about that uh, but all good all good that that means more episodes of murder miles which is great so uh there we go uh is my tea about to brew let's get it before it brews before it gets too hot yeah there we go a little bit of steam uh, uh. a midge was trying to jump into my face little bastard uh eva won't be happy about that she'll be like who is that midge how dare he she what uh what else is going on as mentioned at the start of the episode uh we're taking how to plan the perfect murder and then totally balls it up to manchester manfully ah kid manfully um thank you to everyone who came to glasgow glasgow and and london i can't really do a london accent uh everyone was really lovely and it was great fun and we had fun and it, do you know what it's lovely to meet you so uh with the manchester one what I'm getting the lads to do Adam and Paul and myself. Uh, we're going to make the meet up a little bit longer. Instead of half an hour, you can turn up an hour early. Do a meet and greet. I think it's a nice idea that we can mingle and meet and have a chat for an hour. First, have a couple of drinks and then we'll do the show. So that's the plan for the new one. Um, slightly smaller venue, so there's less tickets. So uh, I would, if you if you're planning to come to this, it's 4th of October yeah 4th of october i think um uh, you can go to uh, murdermiletours.com forward slash live live tour i think it is or live shows the links in the show notes uh, all the details are there that's all good uh what else is going on what else is going on uh i've written getting ahead here what does that even mean michael uh, it's nice and cool outside which is lovely it's a nice sunny day uh it's not too hot which is great though the heat wave is fro'd which is lovely uh, as mentioned, I'm going to go off to Costa in a bit. I'm going to go and pick up some food. I'm back on my diet again because I realised the other day that uh, I was like, oh, I should really go and get some cake. And then I looked in my bread bin and in there was like three or four different types of cake, three or four different types of biscuits, three or four different types of chocolate. And I just thought, yeah, your diet is absolutely gone, which is why why my belt is struggling a bit. So uh, I'm trying to keep myself down to one fun day a week. So I had some beer last night. Uh, I had some crisps. I had some some wheat-free cakes, which was nice. Oh, it's good timing. Someone's just started uh, pulled out a uh, strimmer outside. I think it's over in the field opposite. Good. That won't bother me too much because we're doing this bit. So that's all good. So yeah, back on the diet. I'm trying to be good. Trying to be good. Unfortunately, I think I've got to an age where. You just get it's easy to get fat, isn't it? Just like you have like an ounce of sugar and it just goes blip, blip out. Uh, what else is going on? I'm going to move the boat early in the morning. I've started moving the boat at like five in the morning now, which I love, especially where I am because there's a couple of locks around here where all all the people come out and they 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 all look at the boats going past and it's fascinating there's a lock just down from here it's near a park and all the people come out with their families and their kids and all sitting there and they sit on the um on the lock itself 
and you're trying to get your boat through and then you have to say to them sorry can you move off the lock because i need to open the gates and they're like what what do you mean what what i'm not moving oh we're on a picnic and it's like such morons you just say this is a working lock we're trying to get boats through and you can't because you and your your brood won't fro oh so that's why i move in the morning because no one's there and it's really peaceful and you can have a cup of tea and yeah lovely oh life is good oh uh new patron supporter uh i just want to say uh, thank you to karen Mempis. i hope i pronounced that right Mempis. yes thank you karen for becoming a patron supporter that's very kind of you uh there's uh, i think i'm doing it tonight there's some goodies in the post that i'm doing to you, for you tonight's uh i haven't actually checked that you've put your address on there maybe you have maybe you haven't and i'll send you some goodies as a thank you but there's loads of goodies online uh loads of uh photos uh, crime scene photos that no one will ever see anywhere else because i don't share them anywhere else um, if you're a patron supporter i like to kind of ensure that this is kind of your stuff uh, and f- not with the videos unfortunately because um um uh, youtuber assholes with their kind of uh, restriction rights really annoying oh i'd love to have a private page where i could just have videos for patron subscribers but i can't unfortunately uh so that's that uh, uh let me go and grab that tea and then we'll get into some questions um oh lots of noise outside oh look two ducks i seem to be in an area where there's no ducks i don't understand why I've had I've had weeks and weeks of being in areas where there's ducks and a swan and um, oh I, I was watching a uh, uh, was not a roe deer what are they called the little ones muntjac a muntjac yesterday normally they're quite timid and they they disappear really quickly but one was just walking in front of me and he was having a mooch around and he looked at me he didn't seem that bothered and he just mooched off classic muntjac what time is it Ah, oh, ten to two. Ten to two. I will get to Costa half three. That's two hours. Oh, right. Let's get this done. Four. Here's some quiz questions. We do quiz questions, then we'll do some extra stuff in extra mile. Uh, right. Here you go. Don't forget, as always, I might balls these up because I haven't edited the episode yet. Question number one. If you know your uh, history, this should be easy. What date was VE Day? Question number two. If you know your Murder Mile history, this should be easy. Uh, Which two murders mentioned in Murder Mile happened before and after, immediately before and immediately after VE Day? So we've done two episodes prior, which happened immediately before or after VE Day. What were they? Question three. What foodstuff was first rationed after the end of the Second World War? Question four, roughly how many looting cases did the Old Bailey hear during the war? Now with this one, I, it was kind of a, it was a big number. So um, I, if you're within, if you're within a hundred, I'll give you this point. Question five, how much was a ration sheet sold for on the black market? Question six. What was the name of the man who claimed that his home had been bombed 19 times over five months? Uh, Question seven. I can't remember if I said six at the last one. This is question seven. How many soldiers were executed for desertion in World War Two? Question eight. 
Question eight. What year was the Geneva Convention? Oh, question nine. How many years in prison would you get for malingering? Good word. And question ten. What was Robert Blaine's alias? So there you go, folks. Uh, let's dive into some extra stuff. Now, um, this was one of those cases that um, I wasn't going to cover originally uh, because the archive file isn't available for ages and there's very little in the press and what is in the press is wrong. Hence, people will get... I know people will get in contact with me and they go, eh, he will, uh, they always pull this face when they, when they want to disprove me. They go, uh, uh, he wasn't. He wasn't murdered on Bouchier Street. He was murdered on uh, Kingley Street. Uh, or Rom. Or, or some people will say it was Romilly Street. It wasn't. I actually really, really. Uh, the press got it entirely wrong. They said it was Kingley Street. They said it was Romilly Street. It wasn't. It was Bouchier Street. I really had to fight to get these details right because the original archive files aren't available. But I got some of the police details. Uh, so it is. It's on Bouchier Street. There we go. Uh, I had someone someone messaged me the other day going uh, to do with an episode and they they went uh everything you wrote wrote was entirely wrong I suggest you re reread it carefully and I messaged them to say well thank you for that uh if you could send me a list of everything that I did wrong uh and a list of your sources to disprove this that would be very much appreciated I will reread it carefully no reply as always, no reply. People are happy to tell me that I'm wrong, but you ask them to prove it, and they they can't. They can't. And when they do, they send me like a link to the Daily Mail, and I just go, oh, I can't be asked to tell you what a fucking moron you are. Oh, I love being disproved, and I love when people go, here's some details, and because you know, I, I think it's always really important to uh, not believe that you know too much because we don't know enough and and knowing more is really valuable it's like expanding your brain is so important but some people just they want to believe they're right and they don't want to know anything different and it's just like oh for fuck's sake oh anyway so yeah uh bouchier street it is correct it took me a long time to prove that uh this was originally was going to be part of the uh, book that i was writing about soho uh, i decided to turn this into an episode there was a couple of other um part uh stories coming up that were going to be in the book that's not going to happen anymore which i'm turning into murder mile lucky you, you get it for free uh also they will be part of the um the new exciting projects that I'm working on at the moment for the future, and those will be things that you can take part in as well. So that, so do you know, it's it's it's, it's win-win. Um, what do we know about Robert Blaine? Not a hell of a lot. Uh, born third of August, nineteen twenty, raised in Southwark. Um, we don't know very much. There was he didn't seem to have any friends or family who attended the trial. He isn't married. Uh, we don't know about his brothers and sisters. We know roughly where he lived, but that's long since been demolished. He was a labourer, but that's kind of a general occupation. Um, so all we really know was from the National Registration Act uh, that he was 19 years old at the time he registered. He was a general labourer. He lived alone at 6 St. Clair's Chambers on Sylvester Street in Southwark, which is just south of St. George the Martyr. Uh, now, this was part of uh, the Metropolitan Association for Improving the Dwellings of Industrious Classes. Um, same, as mentioned in this episode, same as the Peabody buildings. This was kind of uh, what they wanted to do was create 
buildings which were kind of clean and respectable where people who were kind of of uh, the industrial classes as they called them people who worked in factories could have a, a, a you know an, a, a cheap affordable kind of uh identifiable kind of in these big premises you got low like uh, in this i think in this one there were 93 rooms for single people and 21 two bedroom departments uh, most of them were for men because obviously with Peabody the kind of the focus really was on women and families but what they realized at the same time was there was a lot of single men so they needed places for single men which is what this became so uh so they housed loads of people um uh, lots of different types of people that live there if you look at the census uh, there's carpenters laborers bricklayers metal turners lumber dealers hawkers steel steel traders printers canvassers joiners meat porters street musicians tailors news vendors kitchen boarders most of whom were men but some were women and children and there were some families as well um but robert didn't seem to have a family of his own uh, we don't know why uh the crew i'm gonna have a slurp of tea Ooh, cup of tea you can hear the um that sound you can hear is the uh it sounds like the the guys are coming past who normally do the they get the they get the do, do the weed whacking around along the canal and it's it's nice that they do that because it gets rid of all the nettles and all the shy like that but the problem is it, it spins around and it flies uh little uh sharp pieces of uh grit everywhere and sometimes it goes through your window and you can't claim off them which is a real pain in the ass um I can hear them. I can't see them. Anyway, uh, the crime epidemic joint. This was what I wanted to get across with this episode. Same with um, Emmy Werner. What I wanted to get across was that we all seem to have this romanticised idea of world of World War Two, you know, because we won it and therefore we're the victors and therefore uh, we like to see it as nice and everybody loved each other. But uh, as you can see with Emmy Werner, what I wanted to get across with that is that when the war ended it didn't just everyone didn't just go oh it's ended let's go back to our normal lives with especially with the jewish population there was a lot of trauma that lasted for a lifetime and generations with this one what i wanted to get across was that it's not it's not all lovely and lovey-dovey and everything was great and it was like do you know i even have a photo of my granddad and my grandmom uh and uh, Trafalgar Square granddad's in his in his military uniform and they're hugging and you know that it's that, it was VE day they they were with everyone else celebrating everything was great but it's it's not like that war was really difficult and that's what I wanted to get across with this is that for even for ordinary people life was difficult which is not to say that Robert and Charles uh, were right to do what they did or that gives them an excuse for doing what they did but they're just ordinary people because of the rules and the ramifications that were going on during those six years and even longer that it forced a lot of people into some really difficult situations uh, and to do things that they would never normally do such as commit robbery desertion murder someone so you can really hear them now it's like a big nest of bees uh so yeah looting was absolutely rife um I, I'm not going to go into that because that that will give away one of the questions. Well done, Michael. Um, as mentioned, but as mentioned in this, uh, when B 
buildings and houses were uh, were bombed out. Uh, the police and the ARP wardens were there pretty much to protect the property because they had to stop people going in and stripping the houses. Uh, and then when the fire engines and ambulance turned up, their job was to protect the fire engines and the ambulance. I know we like to have this idea that everyone was like looking after each other. And do you know what? Wherever you are, there will always be good people who are good and decent and will do their job uh, and will help other people. But you'll always have shitheads. I just sent a video online of some little wankers yesterday on Oxford Street and they decided to go into the uh, what's it called the, the American candy store and they basically stripped it. Like 20 little wankers went in there, uh, rushed the store, stealing stuff. Like going, yeah man, me is, me is stealing mil Milky Ways and Mars Mars in it, me is gangster. It's just like, you're not a gangster, you're a twat stealing sweets, but... That's the thing, isn't it? There are good people in the world and bad people in the world. and Some people need to need a good kick up the arse. Oh, they're getting even nearer. I don't know whether they're getting nearer or whether they're over the other side of the canal. But they, as you can hear, they're very noisy. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, black marketeering. I'm not going to go into that because that gives away some of the questions that we did. Uh, but as you can see, especially with ration books, because so many people's lives were dictated by the ration books, I'm gonna have to close a window because that is, that is. Oh, it's getting nearer and nearer and it's getting, I'm glad it's happening now during this and not when I'm recording the, the main bit because that's really annoying. Uh, what was I saying? Can't remember what I was saying. I've just, I've, I've lost the plot now. Um, Lots of prosecutions. Like, I, I, this is the thing that I, I always find fascinating when people go, oh, during the war there was no crime. And it's like, have you looked at the stats? Have you bothered to look at the figures? And I, it's like people, it's like when people talk about the 60s and they go, oh, about the 60s. But everyone I spoke to was kind of there in the 60s. They don't remember the swing in the 60s. They just remember it as being a regular time. I think there's a lot of people who... There was a small pocket of people who were involved in the swing in the 60s, but for everyone else, it was just, a, just 60s. Do you know? Uh, what am I talking about? I can't remember. Uh, striking. Oh, with the striking. So um, I might clarify some of that because sometimes with these things, you can't always put everything in. Um, uh, so yeah, workers' rights were made illegal, effectively. Striking was made illegal. It uh, became illegal under defence regulations in order to ensure that the wartime industrial output was maintained at a maximum. Um, inevitably, this became problematic. Uh, in 1942, the uh, miners' strike at the Kent Colliery led to the imprisonment of the miners' leaders, uh, and they threatened the imprisonment of a thousand-man workforce if they didn't pay their fines. Uh, obviously, the government really couldn't do much of this because you've got a thousand men who are coal miners, and you really badly need them. What are you going to do? You're going to find them. You're going to send them all to prison, of which you don't have space, or you're going to say well uh what you're doing is bad and we will fine you but we know you can't afford it so uh we might let you off they kind of shot themselves in the foot on this one the uh the government uh compensation as mentioned uh, same as with covid there was a bit a scheme going on to kind of um help people oh looks like they've gone it looks like they're on the other side of the canal which is weird because the other side of the canal is wooded and i don't know why they were there 
the the, the streamer guys anyway uh what was i about to do Oh, yeah, con men. Uh, during the Blitz, uh, one standard ruse for thieves was to kit themselves out with an ARP, uh, which is an air raid precautions, warden's helmet and armband, and then smash their way into shops where no one was looking. Um, this was kind of the era. You know, the, the ARP warden was kind of really important and was was respected, and people kind of listened to what they said because they had the authority to do so. And quite often, people would just make a little air raid warden's helmet and armband load up their car with shit and drive off um but as mentioned in this episode it's not yes there were gangs who were kind of targeting london but it's about ordinary people as well it's fascinating when you look at people's lives in that era and you can see like especially with ordinary women as well there were lots lots of women who did turn to prostitution and it's it's a gray area it really is the term prostitution because many women didn't weren't sex workers they were escorts and escorts or call girls are kind of very different in their own different way but it's still regarded as prostitution um it's like i was reading up something yesterday uh about brothels um as you do um and it was said that like i've read so many cases of people being charged with running a brothel but it doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that you're running a brothel like a big if you're a policeman in in say the 1940s could accuse you of being a prostitute if you were a woman and you were you were alone and you were seen in the same place three times by him he could accuse you of prostitution without evidence uh, and therefore you would have a criminal record for prostitution even though you hadn't engaged with another man or solicited for money brothel keeping that's even grayer in that area so apparently if you're a prostitute uh and you are in the same room room as another prostitute if your maid is with you therefore even though she's not the prostitute therefore she can be charged with running a brothel because two prostitutes are in the same room baffling isn't it so so even though it's, it's this wonderful book i'm reading i can't remember which thank you to uh, whichever listener recommended it. it was the book on the soho prostitutes which i'm really enjoying at the moment i've all, all powered through half of it already by the time you listen to this i would have done the whole lot uh and it's really i really enjoyed it really enjoying it but there's loads of little details that uh it's nicely written but there's loads of details that she's deliberately not said where she is and there's places that i'm kind of having to work out where they are i think I think she's either on Peter Street or she's on Tilbury Court, but I'm not too sure. I'm still learning. Uh, but yeah, there's loads of details that I, I, I never knew, so it's really fascinating. Um, one other detail that obviously went into this case was the British Pat, uh, the British Pet Massacre. The bits of details are online, so you can have a look at that. People are starting to talk about it a little bit more now, as they should. But as mentioned, uh, when war came out and ever and they'd already started by this point to say, Do you know, uh, we're going to need to ration food. Uh, owners uh, would have to make a decision about whether they split their rations with their pets, because obviously the government wouldn't be rationing food for pets. They wouldn't say, like, you have so much money for pets. If you have a pet and you've got some bacon and you've got some bits and pieces and things like that, that's what your pet eats, not you know they don't ration out the dog food and say let's make sure there's enough food for pets therefore there was kind of a real worry that uh, a lot of pets and animals will be left to starve um so uh, narpak as they were called published a pamphlet uh, titled advice to animal owners 
Uh, it suggested moving their pets from the big cities into the countryside, which obviously they did with a lot of their children. Uh, it concluded if you cannot place them in the care of neighbours, it really is kindest to have them destroyed. Um, the problem was, as always, the, with the government, you, you know, you know, like when the um, uh, the truck drivers went on strike and uh, the the petrol tanker drivers went on strike, and the government was like, "There's no need to panic, everyone. No need to panic," and everyone panics, and then you get you always get some shitbag MP, which doesn't really narrow it down, saying, "Oh yeah, stop, st- start, stockpiling fuel with jerry cans." You always get one prick that says that, and the press pick up on it, and there's always a panic, and then we get a run of petrol and we run out because people have panicked well this was exactly the thing there the the government in their wisdom issued a pamphlet the pamphlet said maybe you should destroy killing your pets and everyone was like you're right we should kill our pets uh so unfortunately that uh, as mentioned um battersea dogs and cats home uh along with PDSA and the RSPCA had really fought against this but because they had so many people turning up at their hospitals um they had a choice they could either euthanize the pets um the best way that they could or because they knew that a lot of people would just take their pets home and euthanize them them themselves with a brick so they felt it was best to do it the most humane way that they knew which was you know their way uh I think they used a gas box I believe thinking back to the reg christie episodes um uh Batsy cats and dogs home i had managed to feed and care for 145,000 dogs during the course of the war and provided a field in ilford as a pet cemetery uh, where it is estimated there's more than half a million animals buried uh, many of them from the first week of the war uh in total they they estimate there's a uh, three quarters of a million pets were killed during the course of the event but this was uh ones that were legally euthanized therefore obviously there's quite a few who, who would have been killed during the war but also many who were kind of killed by their owners owing to the hysteria uh what else is going on what else is going on i think that's it i think that's all i have to say about that i sound like forrest gump now oh no there's um I was going to do a whole bit in this episode about all the um, uh, all the other attacks that were going on around that time. Um, at the, around the time um, that they, they were doing a search for Charles Connolly, three soldiers were involved in an armed hold-up in Green Park, so just around the corner. One wearing a sergeant's chevrons who shoved a pistol in the rib- ribs of Archibald Hulsman, who was on D-Mob at the time, and forced him into an air raid shelter. Two other soldiers both both wearing u.s army uniforms uh robbed the man of his paybook wrist watch cigarette case fountain pen and cash and then all three vanished um let's not forget that around this point as well uh we have the case of william raven who we discussed much earlier on uh which was the two canadian soldiers who, who were deserters again they were the ones who um that they hadn't eaten in ages. They hadn't had anywhere to stay. They needed clean clothes, so they basically they robbed him for his pants and socks, and murdered him. So uh, you can see how desperate people were. Do you know the war was over, but for many it was not over. There was still a lot, a lot to do. So um, yeah. Oh right, let's do the quiz questions. Running out of steam now, Michael. Come on. Uh, question number one: What date was V Day? It was the 
the 8th of May, the 8th of May, 8th of May 1945. Uh, Question two, which two murders mentioned on Murder Mile happened before and after VE Day? So just before VE Day, a couple of days before uh, Hitler was murdered, was uh, Jack Tratzett murdered his family in the Cornhouse Tea Room. Uh, and just after VE Day, uh, Elizabeth McClendon was murdered uh, and she was the King of Greece's maid. So there you go. Uh, question three. What foodstuff was first rationed after the end of the Second World War? It was bread. Question four. Roughly how many looting cases did the Old Bailey hear during the war? Um nearest to the hundredth we'll get this it was 4584 question six, question five how much was a ration sheet sold for on the black market it was 10 pounds then which is roughly 400 pounds today question six what was the name of the man who claimed his home had been bombed 19 times over five months he was Walter Handy. Question seven. How many soldiers were executed for desertion during World War Two? The answer was none. Although 306 were executed for desertion in, in World War One. Uh, question eight. What year was the Geneva Convention? 1929. <sighs> Question nine. How many years in prison would you get for malingering? It was up to two years. And question ten. What was Robert Blaine's alias? It was Reginald Douglas Johnson. So there you go. There you go, folks. Oh, there's that one done. So, uh, next week, uh, another single part of next week. I think it's a single, a single, a single, then a double. And then we go on the little break, uh, which I've got to prepare for. So, that's me done. Thanks for listening to and supporting the podcast. Uh, Have yourself a good week. Stay safe and be good. I'm off to Costa to abuse their electricity, but not their Wi-Fi because it's shit. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.